Today's episode is sponsored by TrueLearn. TrueLearn has smart banks of practice questions for a wide variety of high-stakes examinations. Are you a med student? They have smart banks for step one and two. Are you a resident in the field of internal medicine, emergency medicine, or anesthesiology? They have you covered with smart banks for the exams you will encounter along your journey. But this is not only for physicians. PAs and MPs can prepare for their exams using TrueLearn as well. They can even help nurses prepare for the NCLEX. Click the link in the show notes for a discount by using the code EDDIEJOMP. D25. Crush your upcoming exams by using TrueLearn. Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Arillo. For historical context, today is the 24th of October of 2022, and today I'm going to be discussing cardiogenic shock. This is a huge topic, which I'm going to try to condense to a podcast form. I don't know if it's really going to work, but let's give it a go. As always, I recommend that you check out the show notes for citations for this particular podcast as the majority of the things I'm going to be discussing are actually open access articles that you can go ahead and double check my work because as always I mean I guess you got to trust me here because I've done hardcore research on this and I'm trying to provide you with the best data but let's just go ahead and get started and talk about cardiogenic shock obviously cardiogenic shock is one of the four types of shock that we assess for when our patients come into the emergency department or we find a hypotensive patient. Um, and, you know, the other ones, of course, are distributive shock. It's funny how people always say that septic shock is one of the four, but remember that septic shock is encompassed within distributive shock, as is neurogenic, anaphylactic, and vasoplegic shock, um, also adrenal insufficiency. They all fall under the distributive shock category. There's a hypovolemic shock. There's also the obstructive shock where you got to think about like cardiac tamponade as well as PEs. Everybody always forgets about obstructive shock when I ask them the four different types of shock. It's just very commonplace. I actually struggled with it myself when I was not the person who I am today. Obviously, I learned all this stuff at one point and wasn't born knowing all this. But we can't forget about cardiogenic shock. And what cardiogenic shock is per definition is the ineffective cardiac output secondary to cardiac dysfunction. It has to be a primary cardiac issue that causes this. And therefore, there's inadequate organ perfusion, and therefore, the patient goes into shock. So what does this look like on a patient who shows up, for example, to the emergency department? We all know that patients could have either left heart failure or right heart failure or a combination of these. But the most important thing to do is go ahead and examine your patients. I mean, on on physical exam, shared findings of both right heart failure and left heart failure are the patients who, when you touch their extremities, they're cold. They have uh, cyanosis, they have a delayed capillary refill, and they also have orthopnea. Some some signs suggestive of left heart failure are the patients who have, like, for example, lung crackles, respiratory wheezing. Remember that not all wheezing is asthma. And they also might have some left-sided murmurs as well. Uh, The limedema could also be seen, sacroedema. But patients who have right heart failure, those might also have increased JVD, and they might also have hepatomegaly. But when patients present in cardiogenic shock, we have to remember that the most common cause of cardiogenic shock are patients who are having acute coronary syndrome, those patients who are having an MI. And we need to act fast with those patients. You'll see that they have an abnormal EKG. They also have increased troponins, etc. But the, most, the second most common cause of patients who are in cardiogenic shock are those who have chronic heart failure who then have an acute exacerbation of this. And these need to be identified quickly in the emergency department as well because our management strategies depend on making the proper diagnosis. 
See, one of the problems that I have with the current CMS sepsis guidelines is that they try to expedite the diagnosis and treatment of sepsis to such a degree that we might end up on the flip side harming patients who are in cardiogenic shock. You know, they see any patient who is hypotensive with an elevated lactate and have kind of brainwashed clinicians to think that that means that the patient has sepsis. Therefore, they need to get antibiotics and 30 cc's per kilogram uh, of IV fluids when in fact those things are detrimental to our patients. You know, they, these patients show up with pulmonary edema and then the ER doctor diagnoses them with pneumonia instead of pulmonary edema and there, there they go down the death spiral of being treated as septic shock when in reality they have cardiogenic shock. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So I mentioned that the most common cause of cardiogenic shock are patients who are having acute coronary syndrome, including acute myocardial infarction. And the second most common cause are patients who are having acute exacerbations of their underlying chronic heart failure. But we have to keep in mind, especially in this day and age, that there are a lot of patients who are showing up with acute myocarditis, which I'm not going to get into. Also, patients who have Takotsubo syndrome, refractory arrhythmias, peripartium cardiomyopathy, all these patients could go ahead and present to the emergency department in cardiogenic shock. One of the things I saw clinically that was pretty, uh, pretty interesting was a patient who had Takotsubo's but also had a left ventricular outflow obstruction. She basically had SAM, and uh, this was... Pretty, she did well, thankfully, but it was pretty, pretty, pretty neat to see um, because I hadn't seen it in a patient who had not previously gone uh, undergone heart surgery with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But nonetheless, one of the important things to know, and this this reflects the community that listens to my podcast and my content, is that the majority of us do not work at these fancy ivory tower of sorts, not to be insulting or anything like that, but these fancy academic institutions. What I found and what actually somebody who works in my hospital, uh, one of the interventional cardiologists who I have the pleasure to work with, he published a paper looking at a registry of over 56,000 patients and found that 90% of patients with cardiogenic shock secondary to acute myocardial infarction are actually treated at community and private hospitals. And this is an outstanding number because this is the type of institution that I trained at, at least for my residency and where I practice now as a community type hospital. But only 10% of patients with cardiogenic shock secondary to acute myocardial infarction are taken care of at these large academic institutions or even government hospitals. So those of us who are the boots on the ground, again, I'm not trying to be derogatory towards these ivory towers because they do important work, but the majority of them are taken by us in the community, which is why it's so important that we recognize these patients with cardiogenic shock so that we could treat them accordingly. Now, what's our goal when we take care of these patients? Obviously, identify what's the etiology of their cardiogenic shock and do whatever needs to be done to increase organ perfusion. And the reason why this is important is because these patients show up with dysfunction of their heart, whether it's RV dysfunction, LV dysfunction, or a combination of both. And they end up having a low cardiac output. This makes them hypotensive. 
then they start hypoperfusing their tissues undergo hypoxia their endothelium as well as their organs begin start having dysfunction this creates inflammation and then they start having vasoplegia basically they start off with an elevated SVR at first as the body tries to preserve the mean arterial pressure but then all these inflammatory cytokines causes vasodilation and a um, exactly that a vasodilation and a decrease in their SVR and then this ends up decreasing the coronary blood flow of the heart and they go kind of down this death spiral and what we found is especially looking at patients who have cardiogenic shock secondary to acute MI is that the more organs that end up getting affected adversely outside the heart of course the higher the mortality is so we see in these patients that they have dysfunction of their lungs with pulmonary edema patients have acute kidney injury they have acute liver dysfunction with transaminitis and congestive hepatopathy they start having issues with their red blood cells and they become um, encephalopathic because obviously they're not perfusing their brain but if these patients have no organ dysfunctions outside of just the heart for example their in-hospital mortality is 31 percent however if they start having one additional organ dysfunction either one either of these lungs kidney liver brain etc this mortality increases to 38 percent now if they have two or more organ dysfunctions they, this is approximately 50% uh, in hospital mortality for these patients. So we really need to work hard to avoid having dysfunction of other organs in order to preserve the life of these patients. More recently, in July of 2021, there was a paper that looked at the different phenotypes that we see at the bedside for patients who are in cardiogenic shock. Basically, three different phenotypes that are described as non-congested, which are patients who show up with solely one organ dysfunction being the heart. The second type is the cardiorenal, and as the name explains, these are patients whose heart failure and, uh, and cardiogenic shock knocks out the kidneys in the process, and so they have these two organ failures. Versus the third being the cardiometabolic type, where they have issues encompassing the heart, the kidneys, as well as the liver. And when they've looked at different cardiogenic shock working groups, these are organizations that basically compile data from registries and other sources to determine outcomes in patients with cardiogenic shock, they found that those patients who just have this non-congested heart primary type of cardiogenic shock have a mortality that ranges between 10 to 28%. Now, cardiorenal patients, those who have both the heart as well as the lungs, the mortality just skyrockets to 32 to 45% in these patients. So you really want to try to starve off, so to speak, or to push away the chances that they might compromise their kidneys. Now, those patients with the phenotype that's described as cardiometabolic, those patients who knock out their heart, their liver, and their kidneys, these end up having a mortality rate that's in excess of 50%. So these patients just right off the bat need the most help we see the, just again the mortality just skyrocket in these patients so thinking about the death spiral of sorts we have these patients who have this acute, cor acute cardiac injury they decrease their cardiac output in in a compens compensatory excuse me mechanism they try to keep their map up by having this peripheral vasoconstriction but this ends up killing some cells in the process developing this inflammatory reaction which many of us know as SIRS they end up developing pulmonary congestion. They 
have this spiral that continues on with additional systemic and cardiac ischemia. They decrease their cardiac output even further, and unfortunately, these patients meet their demise. But our whole objective as intensivists and ICU teams are to work together with our interventional cardiology friends and as soon as we identify that these patients are having this decreased cardiac output, we need to address the underlying insult, which means that if the patient is having acute MI, they need to go to the cath lab as soon as possible. But in the cath lab, I know that this is not within the control of the majority of intensivists and ICU teams, but they need to have both a left heart cath where you know they go ahead and they shoot the coronaries and see if there's something that needs to be repaired whether it be a stent or does the patient need to go for emerging cabbage, but they also need a right heart cath. And the reason why they need a right heart cath, which uh, another way to explain is that they need a swan or a PA catheter, which I've described in the past, is that doing the right heart cath allows us with the hemodynamic parameters to go ahead and calculate the CPO, which is the cardiac power output, as well as the PAPI, the pulmonary artery pulsatility index. Because these two hemodynamic calculations are going to help us determine what type of support the patient needs. Do they need left-sided left support? Do they need right-sided support? Or do they need support of both ventricles? So I think this is a good place to quickly stop. To be honest with you, I have some workers coming into the house and they're going to be making quite a big commotion. So I apologize for dropping off right here. But I'm going to continue on discussing at a later date of how we should classify or stage cardiogenic shock. And give you also some management tips for the bedside as to what the what the cardiogenic shock stages look like, why the patients need a swan, and um, different, different calculations that are going to help us take care of patients better in the ICUs who are suffering from cardiogenic shock. Also, this podcast, I didn't want to make it too long because, you know, I, I just can't sit around that long just to record, and I don't have a lot of time today. But overall, I thank you all very much for your support, and I appreciate you sticking with me in this journey. Sorry that I've been unable to record frequent podcasts, but I've been quite busy lately. All good stuff, thankfully. Hope you all are doing well. Wish you all the best, and thanks for taking care of all the patients you do. Bye.